Welcome to Elementor Talks, a podcast that airs innovative voices from the worlds of marketing, design, and development. Listen to experts exploring best practices and learn how to build better websites. Chris Savage is the co-founder and CEO of Wistia, a web-based video platform for businesses. Since its founding in 2006, Wistia has grown rapidly, further expanding its services for businesses looking to add videos to the web, track performance, and build audiences. In this podcast, Chris tells us how winning the Emmy Awards propelled the development of Wistia, illustrates the role of videos as part of a content marketing strategy, and advises businesses to think like media companies. Welcome to another episode of Elementary Talks. With me is Matan. Hi, Matan. Hi, Ben. And we have a great privilege to host Chris Savage, the CEO of Wistia. Hi, Chris. Thanks for being on our show. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, so where do we begin? Yeah, you know, uh, Wistia is a video marketing application for our listeners who might not know, but it makes it really easy to host, to customize, to promote, and to track your videos. Chris, as we just mentioned, is the founder and CEO. And, you know, Chris, you are not our typical guest. Most of our guests have a high-tech or startup background, either entrepreneurs, uh, marketers, developers. But you're actually an artist, if we can... Uh, a filmmaker. Yeah, a filmmaker. How does it work for you in this uh, jungle of uh, startups? <laughs> So I have, you know, an interesting background. I started a, you know, I did film while I was in college and I was really fortunate. I worked on a feature film and I started as an intern. So I was doing the jobs that no one wanted to do. That's, you know, often as interns <laughs> do. And um, the movie ended up doing pretty well. We got it to theaters ourselves. It made money. Um, we won an Emmy. All these things happened that I could never have imagined and the funny thing about it was like, it gave me a taste of that world in the good and the bad. So we were a really small team. I think we were maybe four or five people. And four or five people could make a movie that could go, you can play at tons of festivals and play in theaters. And you know, the first time I saw it played in front of an audience there were 600 people and there was a standing ovation and it was insane. But also I saw the challenges of being in an industry where there's a very small number of decision makers who end up controlling what happens. So we were trying to get distribution for that movie, which meant some other company would take it and, you know, put it to theaters themselves and do all this stuff. And we couldn't get it done. And it was because one person on one day, they just didn't feel like it. And so when I, when I wanted to start a company, part of that was like, well, I've seen what a small team can do. I've seen that a small team can do great things. And I had somebody who was like my best friend from college. We always wanted to start something together. And uh, we just felt like we could be in control of our own destiny. And that's like the dream is like, is doing that. And then for me, in terms of my craving to do creative things, running a business, it turns out, if you're doing it right, every day there's lots of problems to solve that need very creative solutions. And um, if you look at, it just sounds, I know this sounds crazy, but like, when you have totally a blank page on what your business can be, on what the business model can be, it's kind of like painting. You know, it's like you put the you put the stuff together and you decide if you like it and you try something else. And every day feels like a blank page where you get to you get to start creating things. And so for me, I feel incredibly satisfied and excited by the challenge of creative work. And it turns out that startups are full of that. Back then still as a filmmaker working for this uh, production uh, company. 
did you already identify some needs in this video marketing world? So we didn't start in video marketing, but yes, there were some obvious needs. So working on that film, I was very lucky that I got that job and very lucky that that film did well. And so I had a good reel is what it's called. Like, you know, the, the reel is like all the video examples of your work. It's like your video resume. So I had a really good reel because I did that and I worked in some commercials and some other stuff when I was 21. So that was awesome. But the way that I would send people my reel was I would make a DVD and then I would ship it to them. <laughs> that seemed insane to me. So I, back then I was putting stuff online, you know, I had my own website and it doesn't, it seems impossible to believe, but if you want to put video on the web back in 2005, that meant you had to decide if you're going to use um, QuickTime. Basically only Macs could see your video, but a video would look good. Compression was good. Or you could use real player, which basically everyone could watch real player, but the player was terrible. It was just horrific. It was a horrible experience. You could then get flash like Adobe flash. You could encode it into flash and most people could see that, but that costs money. So I had to pirate flash if I wanted to have my video on my website be flash. And I had been trying to get my stuff out there on the web and all these filmmaking communities because there were some and they just, none of them were that vibrant. There was not that much happening. And so I was very aware of that problem. And then Brendan and I saw the very beginning of YouTube, right when it launched. And the funny thing that most people I'm sure do not know or remember is that there was like 10 companies that are exactly the same as YouTube. Mega Cafe, Vio, Bolt, all of these things, they, they were all exactly the same. Like the, and a side note, but the way that YouTube got tra traction back then was like giving away free iPods and allowing pirated content. That is like what helped them <laughs> scale, which is crazy. But we saw all these companies and we realized something is happening, something fundamental to how online video works. We dug into it and it turned out that there was now open source tools to do video encoding that would allow you to code into Flash. And what that meant is that anyone could write software they could take any, basically any format of video and turn it into flash. And so this problem that I had experienced, which is why I thought the video communities were not taking off before the filmmaking communities, we thought it was going to be solved. And so that is what we saw as opportunity. It was like huge technology shift happening. And we felt like this is just starting to happen. It is unproven. We were both incredibly naive and young and had no experience, but we thought, well, we don't have any experience. No one else should have that much experience in this market. Probably if there was ever a time to start something, be in control of our own destiny. This would, this would be a good opportunity. Almost uh, reminds me a little of uh, Silicon Valley, you know, the compression of the video. That was the first. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when did you decide about positioning, like finding the right persona that fits exactly your niche and differentiating yourself from Vimeo and, and, uh, and YouTube and all the other competitors? Yeah, so I will say <laughs> the answer to this question is a funny one because uh, our position has evolved so much over the years. It's like, it, I think product market fit, you can get product market fit, but if you don't keep investing and you keep focusing, you're going to lose it. Like it is not, it's not a binary. You don't get it and then have it. You have to get it and hold it. You have to get it and evolve it. And so for us, the first thing that worked it took us about a year. We stayed focused on video, tried a lot of different things. But the first thing was we ended up creating a website where people could securely and privately share videos, specifically companies. 
And our first customers were a medical device company, billion dollar company that was doing training, all these different things. And actually our first competition was DVDs. So it was like medical device company sending DVDs of surgeries around the world to help them improve the surgery. We said, you can do it instantly on the web and you can comment, it's secure. It's like, that sounds really good. That sounds great. No one was doing that. We were like very, very, very focused on that. And until we had about 200 customers, we were only focused on that private kind of competing with DVD thing. We'd end up building um, analytics because one of our customers was using video for training and they wanted to know if their team was watching the videos. So we built that, all our customers got it. And then people started saying, can we put these analytics on the videos on our website? And this is before YouTube had analytics. So it was like pretty damn early. And we're like, no, you guys are all wrong. That's crazy. That's gonna screw up our positioning. We're the only people who are doing the private sharing thing. And if we put it on your website, well, we eventually listened to them. And of course our customers were right. And we realized it was incredibly useful for marketing. And then we also thought it was funny that YouTube didn't have this and Vimeo didn't have this. And we started to realize that marketers were actually underserved. And so we focused on marketing for a long time. And then, you know, different niches within marketing where, um, you know, where we think like the, our product and our approach will help us be the best at what we do. And I think that's a, a really important thing to wrap your mind around is you're thinking about product market fit or you're thinking about competitive advantage is you have to be honest about what your company is, can be the best in the world at being and also what you can't be. And ideally, you're best in the world at the thing that also differentiates you <laughs> for your core customer. And, and, and it's, it, yeah. yeah. I think you did a great job marketing to marketers. And actually that's, I have a personal uh, inquiry uh, because our own company, we, a lot of our audience uh, are marketers, people who build landing pages and manage campaigns and SEO, et cetera. So what did you learn about marketing to marketers? <laughs> you know? Yeah, so I would say what we've learned marketing to marketers is that, well, first of all, there's different marketers. And there are fundamental things that people believe. And they're searching for answers that align with their beliefs. So there's the performance marketer who only cares about data. There's a creative marketer who doesn't care about data at all. And then there's this, it's a spectrum in the middle of like people who want both things or they lay, like lean one way or the other. There's also people who are willing to do um, black hat things and people who only do white hat things. And you kind of have to like coordinate around where are you and what is the type of marketing you can do? Because the reality is if you're marketing to marketers, you better believe they're judging everything you do. They're going to judge your marketing. And if your marketing sucks or they don't agree with it, they're less likely to use your products because that's your brand. And so I feel like I learned that lesson. And then I learned that lesson over and over and over again is we tried things that actually didn't feel like they were our strengths. And so it's, there's a lot of people out there. And I think that the key is actually being comfortable and confident that your approach, hopefully there are people who resonate with that and you have to go out there and if there aren't, maybe you need to change your approach, but you need to lean into whatever your approach is and try to be the best at it. And that's really, really, really hard. But just trying to do that usually helps you make better things and do better marketing. Um, and that ends up being what inspires others. Well, that meta perception of, of uh, having the awareness that uh, your customers also judge your own efforts, I think that's uh, very smart and, and not obvious at all. Speaking of marketers, there's a huge role that, that video plays now, and you wrote about it 
in regards to the funnel and uh, you know the video engagement metric so how does this play out and what does this mean so our society is is constantly shifting and one of the ways we've shifted recently is that consumers have an expectation that they will get to choose how they interact with information those might sound like all like abstract things but basically what that means is that as a consumer some people want to watch stuff Some people want to listen, some people want to read. If you, give, if you get rid of the ability for people to read, they're going to be pissed. If you get rid of the, people, the ability for people to watch, they're going to be pissed. If you get rid of the ability for people to listen, they're going to be pissed. They didn't used to be pissed. But now, there's such an abundance of information effort on the web. If you go to New York Times and you have those options, you're going to expect that on someone's website. And so, the, because video is often harder to make than uh, recording audio or writing is much harder than text, What ends up happening is that a lot of companies miss an obvious opportunity, which is throughout their funnel, there's places where you could be explaining things in video and there's a percentage of your audience who just wants to watch it. And if you give them that, you're going to improve conversions. Um, and you're probably going to improve the connection with those folks because video also is naturally such an emotional medium. So that's kind of what that concept is and why you'd want to pay attention to video engagement. And then I would say, Video engagement is just simply the idea that people are continuing to watch your content. And if you're marketing things, people know that you're marketing. And so they are aware of that. And they are basically, if you're watching content from a company, you are going to turn it off if it's not relevant in a way that you're not if it's like a viral video that you think is going to have a funny ending. Like that just doesn't work the same way. And so your goal should be to have people continue to watch. And if they have momentum viewing your content, then you can ask them what else do you want to view or what. Do you want to take the next step? Do you want to sign for my demo or whatever? And so that data, that viewing data is really valuable to a marketer because you can help understand um, the interests of the people in your audience. Can you tell a bit about, more about uh, the data itself? How do you measure? What, what you measure? What, what's the metric? How do you um, engage maybe at the end of the video? Yeah. So um, the way we do it at Wistia is we create a heat map of every viewer. So you, if you have a video that has a thousand views on it, there's a thousand heat maps. The heat map shows you what people are watching, what they're skipping, what they're rewatching. And then, so that data is interesting because you can take it and you can bring it into your market automation or your CRM and you can see the interest data in another place. Or you could create an automation based on, show me everyone who watched the product video all the way through and didn't sign up. Then send them an email. You could do that type of thing. Then you also can take the, we aggregate the engagement data So you have the view for your audience as a whole. And that is helpful because you can see what parts of your video are resonating or which parts are not. A good example of this, uh, Masterclass. Do you guys know them? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Masterclass, when they started, they used Wistia for a very long time. And the way that they would improve their courses is they would look at the Wistia engagement data and they would look where it drops off. If, where people are turning it off. And they would go look at that moment and try to figure out, is that necessity that we explain things in that way or should we actually re-edit that section so that people don't drop off? Like, are we giving them a bizarre signal that the video is actually ending or that they've gotten all the information they're going to get? And then what they saw and what we see in all our customers, but that is cool that they saw this, is that the, the parts that people re-watch are usually the most interesting parts. And so, you know, Dustin Hoffman is in one of their videos like, 
passionately swearing about how great you know being an actor is. Turns out that's the part that people rewatch, which is also interesting because that can dictate what you make the next time you trailer, make trailer. It also helps with the trailer and and giving uh, sneak peeks and all that. Exactly. Uh, I I'd like to have a short uh, uh, divergence into uh, we still did a, a unique move when you got into debt. I read about it a while mm-hmm. ago. Can you share exactly what, what, what's the story? Yes. So we raised $17.3 million in debt uh, at the end of 2017. Why did we do that? Because, um, because we did what's called a leveraged buyout of our own company. So we had the opportunity to sell the company. And my co-founder and I realized that we were actually unhappy with how the business was going. And if we sold the business, we would... You know, do our time at the next company and then that bought us, and then we would try to build another Wistia. And when I say another Wistia, that was like we knew the people we'd hire. We actually knew product that we wanted to build. We knew things that we wanted to do in our space. We knew we wanted to build a strong brand. We knew we wanted to build a great culture. All of these things have taken a very long time. And in our like analysis of whether or not we should sell, we realized we're unhappy because we've let some of these things go, and we're always going to regret. Not giving it another shot, and so once we decided not to sell, that created misalignment with our angel investors because we'd raised one point four million dollars from angels and our team because we've been giving our our team stock options. So we had to fix that misalignment if we're not going to sell, and the debt allowed us to do that. So raising debt meant we took all this cash, we told people it's like we're selling the business. Sell as much of your shares as you want or not. Brennan and I are in this for a long term, and we're going to force the company to be profitable so that we can pay down the debt. And we also thought that would be good for us because forcing us to be profitable would once we are profitable, we'd be able to take the kind of creative and long-term risks that we love taking. And we just know ourselves that when we don't have to worry about the month to month because you're so profitable that doesn't you're not you're just not stressed, um, that we do better work. So we did that in um, 2017. You know, people are afraid of debt. Seems like a scary thing. So it created some turmoil, but it ended up going really well. So we got the company much more profitable than we were expecting. You know, I think we've been doing the best work we've ever done. We did a feature-length documentary, 2018. Couldn't have done that. Called One Time 100. Had we not raised the debt, we refinanced the debt. So it's much cheaper and easier to manage. We're paying it down aggressively. Um, and the company is very profitable. So we get to take long-term risks, which is, and creative risks, which is what we, what we love to do. That's great. Um, recently, you launched Brandwagon. This is a podcast that you host, uh, talking with the different, uh, uh, you call it the brains behind the brands, successful brands. Would you like to tell us a bit about that? How? Yeah. So um, Brandwagon is a show that we launched four weeks ago and you're exactly around the money. Like I'm sitting down with CMOs, CEOs, entrepreneurs, other creative folks about how they're building and investing in brand. And the reason I'm doing that is because we have seen this shift happen with small, medium sized businesses where, you know, it didn't, your brand didn't matter as much 10 years ago, because if you were the first person to write the content for uh, organic search, you'd get discovered, you'd have a great business. Um, if you were the first person to advertise a platform or the first company to advertise a platform, you could differentiate yourselves. Well, the internet is maturing and um, it's not the wild west in the same way that it was before. 
And so people need to have a connection with the companies that they're interacting with. And we just see that brand matters more than it has, uh, a lot more. But brand feels really fuzzy. And it's like, how do you build a brand? How do you invest in a brand? What does building a great brand look like? And so I've gotten that question enough times that I was like, you know, because people will tell us that they like our brand. How'd you do it? I'm like, well, I know our way, but it's our way. There's a million, <laughs> a million ways. Um, and it basically clicked that, you know, we have this opportunity because this is a question that's being asked a lot. You know, we've built up a network over the years of doing this. And I would love to sit down with people and talk to them about that. And so Brandwagon is the show that we get to do it. Okay. Well, the, this also continues uh, uh, a lot of the content marketing efforts that you've come to be known for. Uh, so you wrote also that today content marketing means you need to think like a media company. Uh, yeah. Even if you're a small uh, business, even maybe a freelancer. So how does, uh, what does this mean? So basically what this means is media companies are very good at building audiences. They figure out what kind of content an audience wants. Then they figure out a repeatable way of making that content and a way of evaluating whether or not it's working. And one of the things that they do very differently is when they figure out they have something, they market it. And I know this seems crazy because it's a simple idea, but often someone writes a blog post, put a blog post out, did it do anything? I don't know. Like, is, are we getting ranked for it now? Like, did someone else put in their email list? That's kind of like, that's what you got. You know, you don't normally take out ads for a blog post. You don't normally do cross promotion for one specific blog post. But one of the things that media companies do is when they have an asset like this podcast, for example, and they know this episode played really well with the artists that you have in your crowd, and it played really well with like first time entrepreneurs, it played with these different folks. Once they have a great piece of content, they market it like it's a con like it's a product. So yes, it goes to all the subscribers of the podcast, but they would take clips from it and put it on all the different social channels. They'd have video versions of it. They would advertise it and all with the goal of trying to find the most efficient way of using the content to build an audience. And then once you have an audience, it gets easier to build another one. So if you create a second show and you can mention that second show on your first show, let me tell you, it's gonna be a hell of a lot easier to build up the audience of the second one. If you make a third, it's going to be much easier to build up the audience of the third than it was to build the first two. And suddenly you have this enormous amount of captive attention. And I think in a world where it's, hard, where it's more expensive to advertise, it's harder to compete, it's harder to differentiate, uh, marketing like a media company makes a ton of sense. And the production capabilities are now there and they're affordable enough and they're high quality enough that I think everyone could do it. This also can be seen in uh, producing more a, a mindset of producing shows as opposed to like single entity content. So, because this way you, it's like you have a pilot, then you run with the show for season one, which is, has been prevalent in, in, in TV. So it should work also for, for content marketing. Exactly. And so you look at Brandwagon. So Brandwagon is like a talk show for marketers. So I'm in front of a desk that looks like a late night set. And we have jokes and segments and all this stuff. And then we cut into the interviews with those folks. But it's actually really repeatable production because the set is the same every time. So we know what it is and we're figuring out how to make it faster and faster. And so really the way that we look at it is like, all right, well, we're going to do the first season exactly as you said, see how it's received and then decide 
what do we want to, if we're going to do a second season, what do we want the second season to be? Is it the same? Is it different? You know, we're going to go back and look at the collective works of it. But even with Brandwagon already, you know, we've been able to get a, a huge percentage of the audience is actually brand new to Wistia, which is kind of crazy because we've been around for 13 years. And so you might think, how are they finding people who have never heard of them before? It's like, well, it turns out that just by marketing this show, which talks about a more broad topic than we've talked about in the past, we are able to find people who have never interacted with us and are excited about it and coming in and watching and listening. So to wrap it up, how can people follow your brand your, your, uh, start, and start using uh, Wistia? So I'm on Twitter at csavage. So you can interact with me there. I try to write about building, well, I was just going to say startups, but really building Wistia <laughs> uh, at savagethoughts.com. Um, and obviously you can check out Wistia, W-I-S-T-I-A. And I'd love it if you checked out Brandwagon, um, which is right there, Wistia, Wistia.com. We definitely will. Yeah, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And, and here you ha- it seems like you have a real vision about the way you want to build a company. And this, I, I love to talk to people uh, with this uh, mindset. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. Thank Thanks you. Take care. Bye-bye. See ya.